This is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Gene Demby. And we're coming at you with a podcast extra because, well, Gene, this week has been extra. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, how else do you say it? Right. First, there was the graphic video of Alton Sterling being shot at close range by the Baton Rouge police, which was horrifying. And then, uh, if that wasn't bad enough, Diamond Reynolds mm-hmm. uh, Facebook lived the aftermath of the shooting of her fiance, Philando Castile, by police in Minnesota, and she Facebook lived him bleeding to death while she was calmly explaining what led to that happening. And you can hear um, in the video that we're about to play the officer cursing in the background. Stay with me. We got pulled over for a busted tail light in the back. And the police just, he's, he's, he's covered. He they killed my boyfriend. He's licensed. He's carried to, he's licensed to carry. He was trying to get out his ID and his wallet out his um, pocket. And he let the officer know that he was, re- he had a firearm and he was reaching for his wallet. And the officer just shot him in his arm. We're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. I will. Fuck. He just shot his arm off. We got pulled yeah. over on Larpener. I told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand open. He had. You told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. Oh my God! Please don't tell me he's dead. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. Just keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Please don't tell me that he's gone. Please, officer, don't tell me that you just did this to him. You shot four bullets into him, sir. He was just getting his license and registration, sir. Get the female passenger out. Man, exit the car right now with your hands up. Let me see your hands. Exit now. Keep him up. Keep him up. Where's my daughter? You got my daughter? Face away from me and walk backwards. Walk backwards towards me. Keep walking. Keep walking. Keep walking. Keep walking. Get on your knees. Get on your knees. And her four-year-old daughter was in the car Mm -hmm. who witnessed all that. And Jean, you are... you were actually the first person that I called after I saw that that video. Mm, yeah, we were trying to write the script, and we just I just was like, I can't do. I don't know if we you can started do this. crying, <laughs> um, which is a, I think a place a lot of us have been. And and now there's Dallas, and I just feel like there are no words. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's our job to have words. We're supposed to talk about these things, right? I mean, and we we've been having words, right? I mean, this story of black and brown people who died after encounters with the police. We've been on the story for the three years that we've been here at Code Switch, right? Right. We were together after Michael Brown's death in mm-hmm. Ferguson. I went back after the grand jury didn't charge Officer Darren Wilson. Uh, we were in Baltimore together after Freddie Gray's death mm-hmm. and the unrest that followed. Yeah, um, I've been trying to find a way to blog about nearly every high-profile killing of a black person uh, at the hands of the police. Um and trying to find some new context to add every time. And this is hard, because to be and honest... we've had, yeah, conversations sh- about where you're like, what do I say? Right. Like, what more is there to say about this? Yeah, Here we are. <laughs> we we got to talk about this. Um, we're so we're going to try to find something to say about it, because it is imperative 
that we talk about this. So with us in studio is Kat Chow from the Code Switch team. Hey, Kat. Hey. This morning, you put out a call on Twitter. Um, you were asking people from Dallas if they were ready to talk themselves, if yeah. they wanted to say something about the sort of conversations they were having after what happened in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it was such a kind of weird, hard question to ask people because this had just happened hours before um, in the middle of the night. But one of the people who I heard from was this person named Joe Jones. So Joe, he's 35. Mm. He's black. He's lived in Dallas for about three years. He moved to Dallas from Atlanta with his wife. And he was talking about how that tone of conversations he was having with his white friends, Mm -hmm. um, these white acquaintances, uh, the tone of the conversations about race and policing, they were changing. Um, So I called him up over Skype and I just had him explain this to me a little bit more. The thing that really struck me was there have been so many shootings in the past and the conversation had really been one of either Black Lives Matter in opposition to taking any kind of stance against that kind of violence by the police or being a person who was pro-police and was willing to accept um, that violence was just a natural part of what it took to be a a cop. And I think that Philando Castile in particular, um, specifically white people, could feel and empathize in a way that I'd never seen before. I think it helps that his girlfriend and her daughter were in the car and there's a connection there for family and for young kids to never have to face that kind of violence. The other side of it was that he had a carried concealed permit and that's not something that's easy to get. And I have a lot of friends who are the vast majority of them white who have permits to conceal and carry and they take that right very seriously. And so the fact that he did follow procedure and he was reaching for his ID aren't things that slipped past them. And so folks who I'd never seen sympathize with a young black man who had been shot by a cop were able to say for the first time, I can see myself in that position. I know that he did the thing that was expected of him to do. And they reacted by starting to think about and question whether or not there really was an issue. And I think that was something I had never seen before. And so the conversation had turned to where those folks were asking questions about folks they knew who looked different than them but had similar life situations and whether or not those people were really in danger. I definitely felt like there was this momentum, this feeling of enough is enough, especially after that Diamond Reynolds video. I felt like there were those conversations happening. Um, But then, you know, the very next day, a terrible tragedy happened and five police officers in Dallas were shot at that demonstration um, by an African-American man. And it just kind of, it's it's a different story now. It feels like a different story. First, we heard from Joe saying he was feeling good about the conversations that people were having, even though the videos were horrifying. Mm -hmm. He was feeling good about the change in tone. But now we have this horrific event. Then how does Joe feel? Did you ask him about that? Yeah, I did. I mean, and he was scared. I mean, so he said that when the Dallas Police Department tweeted that photo of a young black man as a person of interest, this young black man wearing camo, carrying a rifle, uh, walking with the marchers, Joe said that that guy looked like him, um, actually physically looked like him. Hmm. Same stature, probably. Um, And Joe said that he actually saw like similarities in their faces. Um, And that really freaked him out. 
I could see my similar traits in him and I was legitimately afraid to go out of my apartment because someone could mistake me for him and I would end up getting shot. And so uh, when I say emotionally caught up, I mean, literally, I don't spend my everyday um, life thinking about the fact that because I fit a profile of someone whom the police are looking for, um, I could be injured. And I think with Dallas police in particular, I've noticed that um, they had just been trying really hard to do a better job of reflecting a community that is diverse and caring for that community. And so um, David Brown specifically, but the whole police department, when I was watching um, from my house, the actual protests had done a really great job. All of those things are true, but there's something about um, seeing someone who looks like you identified as a suspect that makes you realize the power of um, the police they wield and the reality that if I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, I can be misconstrued and lose my life. And so that uh, took an emotional toll on me that I think it's going to be a while before I'll have a chance to really process all the way through or probably feel safe in the way I did before this happened again. Joe told me that he says he thinks we're at the start of a conversation that's much bigger than any single moment. He's been thinking back to things like Charleston and these moments where our country has come together and really grieved together. But after all that pain subsides, everybody just returns to their opinions on whatever issue. And he says that after all of this grief that people are experiencing right now goes away, he's really worried that things will just spiral back to the way they were before or spiral into something much worse. Hmm. Well, thank you for bringing us Joe's story, Kat. Yeah, thank you for having me on here. And after the break, Gene, we're going to talk to someone who studies the history of race and policing in America. Mm-hmm. It's his life's work. He's written books about it, and we talked to him about this week's madness. And he's got thoughts about what needs to change. You should be able to be poor. You should be able to be doing something illegally that is nonviolent and live to face a day in court. That should be able to happen in this country. That's the end of it. That's historian Khalil Gibran Muhammad coming up after the break. So stay with us. You're listening to Code Switch. Thanks for listening to Code Switch. Hidden Brain is the NPR podcast about social science you can apply every day. Things like how being busy affects our motivation and when personalization online leads to discrimination on Airbnb. Find the Hidden Brain podcast with NPR's Shankar Vedantam at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. We're back from the break and you're listening to Code Switch. I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. And I'm Gene Demby. So Shireen, we're trying to make sense of the last week and how we got here. So we wanted to zoom out a little bit and talk to mm-hmm. Khalil Gibran Muhammad. He's a professor at Harvard. His book, his very influential book, is called The Condemnation of Blackness. It's about the history of crime and race and policing in America. So as you can imagine, he's been cited a whole lot in recent years. And Shireen, you got a chance to sit down with him. I wish I could have been part of that talk, too. Here is your conversation. All right, Professor Mohammed. the first thing I need to know is how have you been processing the news this week? And I I first want to talk about the release of the two videos 
the one of the shooting of Alden Sterling by Baton Rouge police officers, and then the second video that came out where Diamond Reynolds is showing her fiancé, Philando Castile, bleeding to death as she gives the TikTok of the encounter with police in Minnesota that led to that. Um, how are you processing this? Well, for me, uh, both videos are heart-wrenching and uh, really just speak to how deeply troubling this pattern is, uh, how repeatedly we see uh, officers uh, shoot first and uh, ask questions later. And the debate we've been having about police reform, about body cameras, uh, about Black Lives Mattering, uh, seems not to have fundamentally changed the calculation uh, when a Black motorist or pedestrian is stopped on the street. Uh, so when I saw those videos, particularly in the case of Diamond Reynolds recording live with her four-year-old child in the back seat, mm. uh, I can't imagine anything more horrifying, uh, but also uh, speaking directly to how normalized uh, the possibility for this to happen is expressed in her calm tone and even her child saying, you're going to be okay, mommy. And then let's fast forward and now we have this news about five Dallas police officers killed at a rally to protest uh, these killings of two more black men by police officers. And how are you processing that news? Also horrifying. Uh, it, it reminds me of how vulnerable everyone is in a, a country where a lobbying group known as the National Rifle Association can literally... Uh, take down our entire society by flooding uh, guns with our, in our streets because our politicians are beholden uh, to them. No madman uh, of any race, ethnicity, sexuality, background, of foreign-born origin or born here in the United States uh, should be able to have access to weaponry uh, that uh, can terrorize an entire community. Watching uh, the news reports out of Dallas, um, I feel unsafe in a, in a world where that can happen. I noticed there was a lot of talk, even in mainstream media outlets, after these two videos came out, after these protests were happening because of them, the conversation was about the need to change police culture. It was about putting a stop to excessive use of force so these incidents don't occur over and over again. And I have to say, 24 hours later, to me, I feel like the conversation has changed to the condemnation of the killing of the police officers in Dallas. And I'm wondering, how do we have both those conversations at the same time? And do you think we are having both those conversations at the same time? First of all, I think we must have both those conversations at the same time. So we ought to be clear about what should be happening. But I also think that there's an imbalance uh, in who speaks in terms of the capacity to understand that, that police violence, uh, as is felt by African-Americans and Blacks more generally in America cannot continue. That That's a hard stop. Mm -hmm. The problem is that uh, there are significant pockets of the majority population of whites in America who are ambivalent about whether or not uh, those African-Americans and others who have been killed uh, is, is somehow justified. And juries and judges have essentially co-signed on that belief. Consequently, uh, at the other extreme, we have a, a heroism attached to the occupation of policing where people who are police officers are wrapped in the cloth of patriotism 
as making sacrifices on behalf of the nation. And this has eliminated the possibility that we can have a both-and conversation Mm -hmm. uh, because of the scale of the unwillingness to come to terms with some basic facts about policing. And this is not just about when police officers shoot or use excessive force. It's also about the culture of policing and the way in which communities are actually treated on a day-to-day basis. How do we write that imbalance? How do we write that? Well, we have to insist that our political leaders start dealing with both the history of our present, which is a history of sustained uh, policing in Black communities that is wholly and fundamentally different than it is in the rest of America. That's a fact. And there are a number of scholars, from historians to criminologists to others, who can attest to that fact. The issue for politicians is addressing it not as a kind of form of political correctness, as we hear so much about, but fundamentally addressing the issue of it cannot turn on the issue of crime in the black community as if these uh, communities deserve to be discriminated against or subject to forms of excessive force. That's a false equivalency. The fact is that individuals in black communities deserve the same respect as individuals in white communities, no matter who in their community breaks the law. That's a fact. And we're not there yet. And our politicians are not governing as such. You're a historian. I'm curious, is is there historical precedent for a week like we've had this week? Can you look back in history and say, hey, this has happened before? Well, I thought about this and um, things have happened so quickly. And, and I can't say that there's something equivalent to this. Uh, but what we do have are earlier episodes of urban uprisings. Uh, I can think of Newark uh, in particular in 1967, where uh, there were African-Americans battling on the streets with law enforcement in response to ongoing and systemic claims and cries of police brutality. And that was sparked by the uh, taxi driver being beat up by two police officers? That, that's correct. And in, in that instance, n- not only did you have the instance of protest, which led eventually to rioting as a form of an uprising, but then you had uh, allegations of snipers shooting at police and firefighters. Uh. It turned out in the end that there was no evidence of snipers, but it created the context that looks very similar to this moment. And that was a moment that led to the Kerner Commission report and ultimately a decision that the structural causes of inequality and racism had to be front and center in any future that improved police and community relations. We learned that lesson in 1968 and we've forgotten it ever since. So there was the beating of a black taxi driver by two white cops, which created civil unrest, yet it ultimately ended in um, a commission that said, this is the result of systemic inequality and racism. That's correct. So how do we get from, from where we are now to that same point where, where we were in 1968? How do we get the conversation to go full circle? In part, uh, the strategies of the civil rights movement uh, was a strategy of compromise to some extent. And that compromise was a form of respectability politics Hmm. uh, that essentially said, uh, we're going to be perfectly articulate, we're going to be perfectly dressed, uh, we're going to be nonviolent, and we're going to fit a model of exceptionalism uh, that 
you will then say, how could we not let them eat at our table? How could we not let them live in our neighborhood? How could we not let them enter our schools? And that's not the full measure of humanity. We cannot or no longer say to black people, you have to be twice as good to have the half the measure of freedom in this country. So you should be able to be poor. You should be able to be doing something illegally that is nonviolent and live to face a day in court. That should be able to happen in this country. That's the end of it. You know, yesterday I spoke with Jelani Cobb, who embedded with the Newark Police Department recently and did uh, the Frontline documentary about that. And one thing that he said was that he talked to retired officers who told him, you think things are bad now, things were were much worse and things have gotten better. I'm wondering, as a historian, what do you think about that? Has there been incremental change since 1968 for the better? Well, I think if we're talking about cultures of policing, I think that police officers uh, function today in a way uh, that has systematically mass criminalized uh, black and brown populations. I, I That's just a fact. You can't get to the problem of mass incarceration without the problem of hotspot, comp staff policing, uh, the war on drugs, all of it. And I think many people would agree that mass incarceration is a step in the wrong direction. Seven million people under some form of uh, criminal justice supervision is a step in the wrong direction in a moment where we're supposed to be two generations removed from the civil rights movement. And policing is at the, is at the center of that. They are the starting point. If, you don't, if, if there's no arrest, then there's no mass incarceration. I would say that to the extent that uh, police officers um, may be more sensitive as a result of implicit bias training, um, perhaps that's better. But I, I think the kind of old discretion that police officers had with regard to knowing the community came with its own positives uh, that we've lost. Police officers today are far less inclined to be on the street. I, uh. I've worked in Harlem for the past five years. You can't find uh, police officers who are walking the streets saying hi to the people uh, and their neighbors, period. So you're saying things have gotten worse? I'm saying that it, on one hand, uh, things have gotten worse because our police officers have put the greatest population of people behind bars in the history of the world. Mm. That's bad. It's terrible. In a moment when crime has been falling for 20 years, I might add. On another hand, I would say that uh, police officers uh, have the capacity today to be uh, better people in the sense that we are further along our racial divide in terms of uh, day-to-day relationships. People are much more likely today uh, to have a genuine encounter across the color line than they were in 1968. And where that is possible, I think all things are better. You know, lots of solutions to uh, the police culture issue have been thrown around. Um, There's been solutions to this problem with excessive use of force, like retraining, that comes up a lot using body cameras, obviously. And I'm wondering, are are these solutions that you think will work? Are they working? Well, body cameras and all cameras uh, provide us a a better picture, not a perfect picture of what happened, what went down. 
but when they're dangling, in the case of Alton Sterling, they're completely right. useless. And when they're partial, in some cases, uh, that don't meet the standards that juries or judges are looking for in terms of prosecuting a case, uh, then they haven't solved the problem. Um, because the community perception of of excessive use of force, in the end, has not been solved by a flood of body cameras or even cell phone videos. I mean, we watched Tamir Rice killed within two seconds of a police officer showing up. So this is not going to be fixed with more cameras or more training. It's going to be fixed when we fundamentally accept the claims that Black Lives Matter is making, that Black life is cheap in America. It's been cheap since Black people came here. And it's gotten better, but it's not where it needs to be. And until we can have that sustained conversation, until we can change the legal structures that allow police officers to shoot first when they are in fear and ask questions later, then body cameras will not get us out of this problem. Will they help move the needle as we see more and more instances of what happened to Mr. Sterling and Mr. Castillo? Yes, but it has to move past the police conversation and the criminal justice arena to implicate all of us, just as the guns debate is about all of us. Professor Mohammed, thank you so much for being with us on Code Switch. Thank you for having me. We should probably end it right there for this week, but we are not done. The story is not over. Follow NPR and Code Switch on the situation in Dallas, but also the shootings in Minnesota and Baton Rouge. We're gonna have more on this with perspectives from the police. And we're gonna hear from Jelani Cobb who embedded with the police in Newark, New Jersey. That's next week. And for this week, this is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. You are Gene Demby. Mm-hmm. Uh, we heard from our squad mate, Kat Chow, earlier. Our producer is Walter Ray Watson. Our editors are Alicia Montgomery and Tasneem Raja. Our clutch news assistant is Leah Danella. And special thanks this week to our interns, Erica Cruz Guevara and Haley Blassingame. You can find us on Twitter at NPR Code Switch. And you should definitely subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. We want to hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. And like Gene said, we're back next week. Y'all be safe out there. Peace.